Good evening. So glad that you could come to our annual homeschool seminar and for our friends who are live streaming. Uh, last year was the first year we live streamed and uh, I was here in an empty auditorium, but we had over a thousand people who were viewing it online and then several thousand who watched it on Facebook and after the fact. And we're grateful for those of you, wherever you may be, whatever state you may be in, because most of this material will apply to wherever you live in the United States, though we have had some people from other foreign countries who are live streaming and those laws will have to be examined specifically. You know, God wrote through the prophet Solomon that there's nothing new under the sun. You know, and I often think of homeschoolers much like uh, those who on the day of Pentecost got up and spoke with such power and authority and those leaders, the Sanhedrin, were absolutely flabbergasted and really threatened because none of their uh, these disciples had been to their approved schools. And sadly, the threat continues because due to the pandemic, the number of children being home educated in America has drastically changed. Before the pandemic, approximately 4% of children were being home educated. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, it jumped to 6%. And right now, at the end of the p pandemic, it's 11%. So now 11% of the students in America between K and K, you know, kindergarten through uh, 12th grade are now being home educated. And it's growing really at a dynamic rate. And this is really a concern to a number of educators in America because they feel somewhat threatened by the home education movement. So I want you to be well informed tonight about the various issues that you will face if you homeschool. There was a um, article that came out in March of last year. It was in the Harvard Magazine and it was entitled The Risks of Homeschooling. And it was written by Elizabeth Bartholet. And uh, Dr. Bartholet uh, made this statement. She said, a rapidly increasing number of American families are opting out of sending their children to school, choosing instead to educate them at home. Now, she wrote the article just before COVID kicked in. And the pandemic uh, forced some 50 million children to stay at home. And of course, she's concerned because as a Harvard professor, she thinks that children are being abused and neglected when they are home educated. So she put this article out in this leading law magazine in the United States with a view that in June this month, last year, she was going to bring in educators uh, and political leaders from across the country to Harvard University to really educate them, quote unquote, on home education in order to regulate it on a new level. She writes this, she said, homeschooling not only violates children's rights to a meaningful education and their right to be protected from potential child abuse, but may also keep them from contributing positively to a democratic society. We have an essentially unregulated regime in the area of homeschooling. Uh, Professor Bartholet goes on and she says, all 50 states have laws that make education compulsory and state constitutions ensure a right to education. But if you look at the legal regime governing homeschooling, there are very few requirements that parents do anything. 
Now, she's creating a straw man here. This is not accurate. Nonetheless, she continues, that means effectively that people can homeschool who've never gone to school themselves and who don't read or write themselves. Uh, Again, um, here's the cover of the magazine that she put out. If you'll bring up the slide, can you hear me up there? Yeah, all right. And so uh, this is the cover illustration for the article that appeared in the Harvard magazine. And what I found interesting was here's this little house And, of course, uh, on the right side of the house, these are some of the books. The Bible, that could be dangerous, I suppose. Arithmetic, um, arithmetic. She spelled arithmetic wrong, (laughs) which I thought was really funny. That uh, Harvard University put out an article with a misspelling. And in the article, they're accusing home educators of being ignorant and uneducated, writing and reading. And of course, the child, the home educated child, is in prison here. And all the kids are being socialized outside and having a great time. Of course, uh, that was the hard copy when they realized they had an error in spelling on the online copy. They corrected it. So they weren't mocking home educators. They just made a, a, a gross mistake. Um, Uh, Let me continue with some of the things that she has to say. Um, She says, we are planning to convene leaders in education and child welfare policy, legislators and legislative staff, academics, and policy advocates to discuss child's rights in connection with homeschooling in the United States. So they had this conference. The, the article was somewhat of a lead to this national conference that was going to happen in June of 2020. And she said the focus of this conference will be on problems of educational deprivation and child maltreatment that too often concur, occur under the guise of homeschooling. So as it turns out, they are having the conference right now They're doing it over the course of seven weeks. I watched the uh, opening uh, dialogue uh, today, in fact. And it's uh, rather interesting. They could not pull all the people together that they had hoped to because of uh, COVID and some of the concerns that Harvard still is living with. Nonetheless, um, just listening to the opening session was a real eye-opener. What I'm going to share with you tonight is that there's a movement in the country to regulate homeschoolers and to take away parental freedoms like we've never seen in the history of home education. So she writes this 80-page article in the uh, Harvard Law Review and also in the Arizona Law Review, and she basically over and over and over repeats two words, abuse and neglect. So she admittedly, in the opening session of the conference that's unfolding over seven weeks right now, admits that maybe it's a smaller subset of people who home educate who are guilty of abuse and neglect. But she said, nonetheless, this small subset needs to be regulated along with all homeschoolers in America. Well, there are laws in all 50 states right now that regulate home educators. But by abuse and neglect, she is defining the words in a different way than the traditional use. So abuse might be you're not teaching your children that transgenderism is normal and natural 
alternatives that your children can take. Or that homosexuality should be embraced and appreciated. And unless you are teaching a certain moral curriculum in a particular worldview, then according to this Harvard professor, you are guilty of abuse and neglect. And so they're making this argument that in other countries of the world, you can either A, not homeschool at all, or B, if you can, it's super highly regulated. And of course, she's with the Kennedy Center at Harvard University, which has a very loud voice in terms of regulating uh, education in America. When senators and congressmen want to hear, you know, what a particular the experts say on a particular subject in the realm of education, they typically go to the Kennedy Center of Government there at Harvard University, of which she heads that school. Um, so all I'm saying is that there's some challenging days in our future. Um, Roman numeral one here, uh, bring up uh, Roman numeral one, if you will, the history of education in America. That's where I want to start tonight. There's a note-taking outline, and if you are online watching us, if you go to communitybiblechurch.us and click on the home education seminar uh, block right there on the home page, uh, you will be able to, on the next page that it will bring up, print out the outline for tonight. And you'll have some useful information and also a spot for you to jot down a few thoughts. Well, why even bother in a home education seminar with the history of education? Well, several reasons. There's a biblical principle is that we can learn from our past. Paul said in his letter to the church at Rome, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Why? So that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, he's saying the earlier times, referring to the Old Testament, was written for our instruction and application that the truth of the Old Testament uh, did not expire with that time frame, but it's instructive. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, as the next slide shows, now these things happened, and he just recounted there in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians a number of major events in Israel's history. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so there's a principle in Scripture is that we can potentially learn from history. So we're going to have to take a little walk down American history um, and think our way through this. In Scripture, uh, we are plainly told that the education of our children is first and foremost given to the parents. It is their responsibility. Um, God puts in the uh, parents' lap the responsibility to teach and educate their children. So when we think about uh, education, I think one famous quote that is worth our pondering is one by Martin Luther. Here's a picture of Luther. Luther said this, I am much afraid that the schools will prove the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in examining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them, the Holy Scriptures, in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not unceasingly occupied with the Word of God must be corrupt. I think he made a powerful statement there, that unless our children 
are, is unless our children are having their thinking shaped by the scripture, that they will potentially go in the wrong direction. And of course, this is one of the reasons why people home educate their children. If, if you ask uh, the average homeschooler that typically represents an evangelical Christian, though this dimension is certainly changing because we've gone from 4% to 11% of students in America being home educated due to COVID. So it's broadened past the evangelical audience. But prior to that, if you ask, what's the number one reason you educate your children at home? Most parents would say character. We are educating our children for their character development. We want to protect them from the indoctrination that's being taught in the government school system. Um, so Professor Bartholet, and you are going to hear her voice over and over again in the next couple of years. She's already working senators and congressmen in our nation. And she said this, the issue is, do we think that parents should have 24 seven uh, authoritarian control over their children from the ages of zero to 18? That's what she says the issue is, whether or not the parents should have 24 seven control from their children from zero to 18. Then she says, I think it is dangerous. I think it's always dangerous to put powerful people in charge of the powerless and to give the powerful ones total authority. She obviously has a different view of children than the one that's presented in Scripture. Dr. James Dobson, most of you know him, his family talk broadcast, the founder, focus on the family, and then when he left that due to some philosophical differences, he started family talk. But he made this statement. He said, in the state of California, if I had a child there, I would not put the youngster in a public school. I think it's time to get our children out. Now, he made that statement 10 years ago. And things haven't gotten better. They've gotten far worse. Here is a picture of Timothy Dwight. Some of you may know him. He was a grandson of Jonathan Edwards. He was the eighth president of Yale University. And he made this statement when president at Yale um, concerning the public school movement. He said, to commit our children to the care of irreligious people is to commit lambs to the superintendency of wolves. Now, he made that statement before there was really any public schools. But he was speaking in a forward manner that the authority for schools need to be with the parents and with the church. And we need more pastors, I think, who, who think this way today, but they're sometimes afraid to address the issue so as to offend educators. So let's just walk briefly through uh, the history of education. 1620, point A there in your outline, the start of education in America. Uh, in both the New England colonies and in the state of Pennsylvania under uh, Governor William Penn, it was essential in their thinking that the children learn to read the Bible. They wanted them educated, number one, so that they could read the scriptures. And so where do you do that? Many people were migrating to the, this new land, some highly educated, some with no education, as they came from England and other places. 
And so generally, if the parents themselves were not going to teach their children to read and write, they would usually recruit the most educated person in the community who is the pastor. And so that cliche of a one-room schoolhouse was more than a cliche. Run through some of those pictures, if you will. These are literally one-room schoolhouses that on Sunday served as a church at one time, but also during the week served as a schoolhouse. Um, and so uh, children would learn to read and write in these, uh, in these buildings. 1636. Uh, was the founding of Harvard University. Here's a statue of the Reverend John Harvard. Uh, he recognized that only a handful of pastors would migrate from Europe to the United States, yet more and more people were coming here as our country grew. And he saw, A, a need for missionaries in order to evangelize the American Indians, but also they needed pastors to lead local churches. And, of course, America was a tough place to live. And there was a lot of, sadly, soft pastors in England who didn't want to make the trip over and migrate. So he said, we need to start our own school. So Harvard College, as it was called then, was started for this very purpose. On the original gateposts are these words, to train a literate clergy. To train a literate clergy. That was the reason... Harvard was started. In fact, if you look at the first hundred uh, institutions of higher education in America, colleges and graduate schools, they were all started with a religious reason behind them uh, in order to promote the Christian faith. Here's uh, the Harvard school seal, the original school seal. And uh, if you know your Latin, uh, veritas, of course, truth. And so on then the side, it says Christo and Ecclesia, uh, which is from the Greek word Ecclesia for church. And so it literally says truth for Christ in the church. That was the school symbol of Harvard, truth for Christ and the church. Here's a later photo. Uh, now it's just truth, <laughs> not for Christ and the church. So Harvard is obviously changed. But what I'm trying to say is that so many of these early schools, including the first college in America, Harvard, was started for religious reasons and for the gospel of Christ. 1647, another key date, the old Deluder Act was passed in Massachusetts Bay Colony, and they required that in every town of over 50 people, there would be some means in which children could learn to read and write so that, as the act said, that old deluder Satan would not keep them from a knowledge of the Scripture. Now, again, these schools were not regulated. They were not public, uh, as we'll see in a moment. But they said, you need to do something if you're in a town of over 50 people and there's not some avenue for the children to learn to read and write. And their motivation in this particular year was so that children would not be deluded by Satan. 1776, of course, the year our uh, nation was founded, public schools are virtually extinct. There actually are no public schools in America in 1776. Now, there were what were called dame schools. And dame schools were small private schools, uh, usually run by women, they had no accrediting agencies, no state textbook requirements, 
no certifications that had to be met. But these were just godly women, for the most part, who wanted to educate the children on how to read and write. Here's a photo of John Adams, one of our early presidents, and uh, he made this statement in one of his diaries. He said concerning one visitor that he had met coming to our nation, he recorded in his diary that this visitor said, I have never seen so much knowledge and civility among the common people in any part of the world. A Native American who cannot read or write is as rare in appearance as a comet or an earthquake. Now, that's one of our early presidents making this statement. And again, remember, there's no public education at this point. Let's jump into the 19th century, 1818. We have the first public primary school system that, that begins. Uh, and this was a reversal. Before this, everything was private. Remember, in the founding days of our country, either everyone was home educated by their parents, or if they didn't have that education, they were educated in the one-room schoolhouse. And then eventually, as the country continued to grow, the dame schools also was another alternative. Um, what began to take place around 1820 was there was a change in theology at places like Harvard and Yale. And the Unitarians had taken over those schools. Uni, of course, means one. So they affirmed the oneness of God, but they denied the Trinitarian nature of God. So Christ was not God. The Holy Spirit is not God. There is one God, but they denied the doctrine of the Trinity. And, of course, to do that, they had to deny the authority of Scripture. Um, they propagated thoughts like man is not basically depraved or fallen by nature, as the scriptures taught, but that man is basically good. Um, still, while they are taking over some of the major colleges, it's going to take some years before their influence begins to take. Nonetheless, in 1836, virtually all the students in America w was using a set of readers known as the McGuffey readers. Here's a photo of William Holmes McGuffey. He was a college prof and president, and uh, uh, at least through the first four grade levels, they used these little readers called the McGuffey readers. You didn't learn on CJ and Ron or jump, spot, jump. But for instance, the first grader in the McGuffey reader uh, would study these words, God made the world and all the things that are in it. So they were being given a biblical worldview. Uh, there was a book published in 1835 by Andrew Reed. Uh, here's a picture of that book and his friend James Matheson. These were two Brits who were leaders in the congregational movement. And um, here's a there's a photo of Andrew Reed. And Reed in a work entitled A Narrative of the Visit to the American Churches. So these two congregationalists come over to America. They want to explore what's going on. And Reed makes this statement. It's often uh, attributed to de Tocqueville because uh, Ronald Reagan, his speechwriter, attributed it to de Tocqueville. But de Tocqueville didn't say it. It was actually Reed who said it. America will be great if America is good. If not, her greatness will vanish away like a morning cloud. So they came over to study the greatness of America. 
But like to the Tocqueville, who said the, one of the reasons America is great is because the pulpits were aflame with righteousness, is that a biblical worldview was being taught. 1837, another critical year, public education begins to spread through a gentleman by the name of Horace Mann. Here's a picture of Horace Mann in 1837. In, in the state of Massachusetts, he's appointed the head of public education. Now remember, up until this time, everyone's homeschooled, everyone's taught in a one-room schoolhouse or a dame school. Um, it's not regulated, but Massachusetts decides that they want to begin to regulate education. And they appoint this guy by the name of Horace Mann. He was a Unitarian, so he was not a born-again believer by any stretch of the imagination. And if you read some of his works, he spent a lot of his time actively opposing the morality of the Bible, the truth and authority of Scripture, and uh, he's called by many the father of humanistic thought. And so what did he do? He began to encourage uh, future educators to go get their degrees in places like Germany and France and England, where the educational system was largely liberal and far from Scripture. But his goal was to promote public education and ultimately to make it mandatory. 1849, he was somewhat successful in his endeavors. For the first time, Protestants begin to say, we need to support the public school system. They weren't called public schools, they were called common schools. And so, for instance, the Protestant General Assembly, that's what it was called, the Protestant General Assembly of Massachusetts. So when all these, you know, on a state level, when these guys got together, they, they were Protestants, and they thought with a biblical worldview, and they said in the minutes of their meeting, and I quote, it is a great evil to withdraw from the established system of the common schools, what we call today the public schools, to withdraw from the established system of the common schools, um, and not to influence it with our religious beliefs. Then they said, if after a full and faithful experiment, it should at last be seen that the fidelity to the religious interests of our children forbids further patronage of this system, then we can unite with evangelical Christians and once again establish our own private schools with a fuller doctrinal and religious instructional system. So that was a landmark decision because they were basically saying, okay, we want to be salt and light. It appears that the concept of the common school, the public school, is catching on. So let's not forsake it. Let's go in and infiltrate it and try to influence it. And if it doesn't work, well, then we'll jettison it. Well, it didn't take long. By 1870, virtually all Protestant religious schools, the dame schools, the one-room schoolhouses, et cetera, et cetera, had been wiped off the map. The public school system had taken root. Next uh, year, there on your handout, 1900, uh, at this point, there are 700,000 students who are in the United States high schools. Now, at the start of the 20th century, the American government school system from the primary grades through high school was at this point firmly in place. Um, it's interesting, in 1860, 
Again, remember Horace Mann and some of these other educators who were trying to promote public schools. In 1860, there were 69 public high schools in America. 69. In 2020, there is 26,407 public high schools in America. That works out to about 528 high schools for every state. So you can see what happened. Now, here's a person that you need to know if you're going to understand American education. Most of you already know him. His name is John Dewey. He's dubbed the father of progressive education. And uh, he um, founded what was called the American Humanist Association. And he was one of the main signers, and most would attribute the authorship to a document written in 1933 known as the Humanist Manifesto as primarily his work and his idea. His goal was to, in this public educational system that had been growing and developing, was to replace the Christian, the Christian theistic view with what he called a common faith. So he does more to plant the seeds to secularize education in America. The Bible's still read. In 1920, you couldn't graduate from a high school in America without having read the entire New Testament. It was called uh, the New Testament is Literature. But his goal is to change that. And so in the Humanist Manifesto that bears his signature, and again, most attribute its authorship primarily to him, uh, they make these kinds of statements. Truth is relative. There are no absolutes. The evolutionary model is true. There is no God and man has no soul. Uh, the National Education Association it hasn't always been called that name, but the NEA has been in place really since the 1870s, and it changed its name, but for the last, I don't know, 80 years it's been called the NEA. And he becomes the first honorary president of the National Education Association. You say, why is that significant? Because the National Education Association has some two million members. These are academics. These are professional teachers, principals, et cetera, et cetera. And they are the chief policy group that influences Congress in relationship to the laws that affect public education. His strategy... Uh, was well thought out as he wrote these words. Change must come gradually. He said to force it unduly, John Dewey writes, to force it unduly would compromise its final success by favoring a violent reaction. In other words, he had the long view. It's going to take some time. We need to be patient. But if we're patient, we will win. And so um, one of his key disciples was a gentleman by the name of Charles Potter. Here's a picture of Charles Potter. Uh, he started what was called the Euthanasia Society of America. You know what euthanasia is. But he wrote this in a book he penned in 1930 called Humanism, a New Religion. This is, I think, a really sobering quote by, again, John Dewey's uh, key right-hand man. Education, writes Potter, education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism. And every public school is a school of humanism. What can theistic Sunday school, meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children, 
due to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teachings. He had it down. Give us your children for eight hours a day, and we will shape your children. You get them for an hour in a Sunday school class, we'll have them all week long. Now, John Dewey dies in 1952, but he had a dream. His dream was to be able to control this humanistic worldview from the top downward. And the most critical year is there on your handout is 1957. This is the first time the federal government gets involved in public education. Up until this time, all education in America was state-run, state-controlled. And Dewey's thought was, if we can somehow, from the top on down, largely through funding, get the states dependent on us, then we can basically govern what the states should do. And so this was a dream come true because it was basically creating a national school board, so to speak. So, for instance, in 1956, there were 26,000 local school boards in America. 26,000. What did that tell you? Well, it told you parents were involved. They showed up at the, their meetings. They had input uh, in 2020. There's less than 1,800 school boards in America. So it's gone from a parentally driven, parentally involved educational system to really a national school board. Um, And if you're like most Americans, sending your child to a government school where you can drop them off, they'll feed them breakfast, they'll give them lunch, they'll give them a laptop, Many think this is a great blessing. After all, you know, because the worldview has changed and mom needs to leave the home and get a job and violate the plain patterns of Scripture, this is a blessing. Because now it's free child care. So the Biden administration, as many of you have heard, want to change the law from mandatory K-5 to mandatory K-4. Now understand, in the early years of public education, a child did not have to attend school until they were seven years of age. And then they dropped it to the age of six. And then they dropped it to the age of five. And if the Biden administration has their way, it will be four. And again, what will the average American do? This is a blessing. In fact, there are proponents who are arguing for K-3. Why? Because they want control of the children. The sooner they get the children, the sooner they can indoctrinate the children with a different worldview. The next two dates that I have highlighted, highlighted 1962-1963, prayer and Bible reading is outlawed uh, from the American public schools. Uh, Two bans were uh, instituted on prayer in the public schools. The first ban came in 1962. The second in 63 through a suit that was filed by, many of you know, Madeline Murray O'Hare. She used her six-year-old son, William Murray, as the plaintiff in the case. And, of course, the amazing, amazing thing about William Murray is he ends up finding Christ as his Savior. I always think of him where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
I heard actually Madeleine Murray O'Hare speak in 1978 at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And if you ever heard a man of God speak with power and the anointing of the Spirit of God, I would say that she's the closest thing I've ever heard to someone speaking with the power and the anointing of the evil one. I mean, she was really something. She said this of her own son, William, after he's converted. Here's a picture of William. I think I have one of him. Yeah. Um, she said one could call this, because she basically abandoned him after he came to faith, one could call this a postnatal abortion on the part of a mother. I repudiate him entirely, and completely now and for all times, he is beyond human forgiveness. And of course, um, he's converted. Today, he's the president of the Religious Freedom Coalition. It's an organization that uh, God has used greatly to protect Christian freedoms. Um, so we've gone a long way from the Articles of Confederation of the United Colonies in 1643 that said this, we all came into these parts of America, from the old country, with one and the same and a name, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity and peace. They wanted to leave England because England was controlling the way they worshipped. The king was governing how they should do things. They said, no, scripture must be the final authority that must govern us. Or statements like this. Think about how far we've gone. 1856. Here's a statement written by the United States House of Representatives, which in many ways more directly represents that federal body, you know, the people of America. And they wrote in that year, the great vital and conservative element in our system is the belief of our people and the pure doctrines and divine truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> they wrote that in 1856. Or in 1892, the Supreme Court, in a ruling um, in Holy Trinity Church versus the United States of America, they declared, quote, in their final review, America is a Christian nation. America is a Christian nation. So we've come a long way. So Bible and prayer reading is thrown out. 1965, the Christian school movement is launched. So thousands of schools are started every year because they realize what we have happening in America is not good. And the, the new um, bent has really changed. And so today there are 15,000 Christian schools in America. 1975, another key date, that's usually viewed as the rebirth of the home education movement. Again, in early America, virtually everyone was homeschooled with the exception of those parents who could not read and write in the one-room schoolhouse, usually led by the pastor. Eventually, they added dame schools, then the common schools, which became the public schools, to where we are today. So there was a couple of key players in the homeschool movement. One was a guy by the name of John Holt. Uh, the other couple was Raymond and Dorothy Moore. And they began to defend the rights of parents to educate their children at home if they so chose. Um, and it was really problematic in the early years. When we came here in 1990, um, I was um, homeschooling our children. Just to tell you our story briefly, um, the, the public schools were never really an option for us, simply because we knew too much. When you are a pastor or in ministry, and you're dealing with people and counseling scenarios constantly, 
you listen to brokenhearted people and what is happening to their children. And I think, man, why would I want to send my kids to that? So we thought, well, we'll go with a Christian school. In fact, we sent our firstborn to kindergarten. And um, it was a good uh, Christian school. There are basically two kinds of Christian schools in America. There are Christian schools that have what we call open enrollment and closed enrollment. An open enrollment Christian school says anybody can come. We don't care if your parents are Buddhists or Hindus or anybody can come. Where a closed enrollment Christian school says, no, at least one of the parents must be born again. And the thought behind that is if a couple, say, are, you know, just nominal, nominally Christians or Hindus or Muslims or whatever, and they're not open to the gospel of Christ to be considered uh, at, to have their children as a member of your particular school, then, then typically their worldview is very distorted. And what they are teaching their children during the week might be very different from what the Christian school is teaching. And so usually the most successful Christian schools are closed enrollment. At least one parent must be born again and typically it's stipulated attend a Bible-believing church. And the thought again behind it is if the things they're learning at school are being reinforced in the home, then that's a really positive thing and it will be a better environment for the children to learn. So your kids aren't drugged down. So without naming too many specifics here, I remember a decade ago, Christian parents sending their kids to school in our county and they were spending, I think, $12,000 a year per child to send them to this Christian school and they're in my office crying and weeping because it was there at that Christian school that their children were exposed to pornography. And they sent them there for the exact opposite reason, to protect the hearts of those children. So um, with time, the movement has grown and grown and grown. Before the pandemic, there were three million children being home educated. We're not exactly sure right now. It's probably five million, and it's growing at about 10% a year. So let's talk a little bit about some advantages to home education and why we should maybe consider this. So Roman numeral two there on your outline, advantages to home education. I think the number one chief reason, at least for born-again evangelical Christians, to home educate is you can give your children added protection from the world. Added protection from the world. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote these words here in Romans 16:19 on this slide. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Or likewise, in similar vein, he writes in 1 Corinthians 15:33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Now, if you know those two verses contextually, the bad company that he's describing are false teachers. And he's saying that false teachers, by the things they teach, will corrupt good morals, just as sound teaching will influence a person into Christ-likeness. And by the way, this is why it's important if you're live streaming somewhere in the country tonight 
and you're not in a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church, you need to be. You can't be in a weak, compromised, lukewarm church and expect to be growing as a parent and to have the maximum influence on your children. All the church is to do is to build the family so that as, you know, we might have the parents four hours a week, max, but they have their children the other 164 hours. And so if the parents aren't growing Christians, getting stronger and stronger in their relationship with Christ, they're going to be very limited. And they're going to be limited in the way they look at life and think of things. And so a lot of people are just kind of apathetic about taking the responsibility of their children and the educational choices they make for them because they're just lukewarm. And part of that lukewarmness goes back to the kind of church they are in. So God says, I'll have you be wise to the things that are good and innocent to the things that are evil. So when we think about evil doctrine, just think about, okay, here we are. We're broadcasting this morning from a county in South Carolina or this evening called Beaufort, South Carolina. In Beaufort, South Carolina, we're in the Bible Belt, and many now consider South Carolina to be the buckle of the Bible Belt, one of the more Christianized states out of all 50. But we haven't escaped the pollution of the world. It's everywhere you go. It's really a fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen at the end of time. So in our own county, our children in middle school are being taught that homosexuality is normal and natural. They're being taught how to protect themselves as they are going to engage in sexual behavior with someone of the opposite sex or the same sex. So one dad, just before the pandemic, he said, I've had enough. He was a new Christian. And he came to my office. He said, I've had enough with the public school system. He said, my eyes are open. I'm looking at life now in a new way like I've never seen it before. Now that I've found Christ as my Savior, I said, well, what happened? He said, my girls came home having had a lecture on transgender behavior. Transgenderism. This is some really sick stuff. And when a culture loses its morals, the culture will lose its mind. And that's really where we are at. Our immorality has led to insanity. And so when parents are having children, what do you have, a boy or a girl? We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? This is now becoming more and more common thinking. And so to call a boy a girl, and to call a girl a boy, and the Biden administration came out two and a half weeks ago saying that sex is no longer determined by biology, this is the sick, depraved stuff that children are being taught as normal and natural. And if we're allowing our children to be exposed to this kind of teaching in this worldview, I used to generally say, well, you know, homeschooling is not for everyone. And that, that's true. It's not for everyone. But you better choose another alternative than the government school. Because if you think as a general rule now you can put your children in kindergarten through the 12th grade 
where they are taught a worldview that is not just, it's just antagonistic to the biblical worldview and that you're going to get a godly, godly project, product at the other end, you've, you've been deceived. Because God says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Here's the top offenses in public schools in 1940. And by the way, in the 1960s, this was pretty much, I would say, true of the grammar school that I went to. Here's the top offenses. Talking out of turn, chewing gum, running in the halls, making noise, not putting paper in the wastebaskets, and getting out of turn in line. Here's the top offenses in 2018. Rape, robbery, assault, personal theft, drug abuse, arson, bombings, alcohol abuse, the carrying of weapons, absenteeism, vandalism, murder, extortion, gang warfare, pregnancies, abortions, suicide, STDs, lying and cheating, bullying, and gender dysphoria. So, these are pretty critical issues. B here, another advantage beyond adding protection from the world, you can provide your children with a tutorial educational model. In a class of 20 or 30 students, assuming it's that small, not all the students obviously can receive the same attention and assistance that one teacher can provide. And we have a number of uh, public educators in our church and what I was always amazed is that um, the principals and assistant principals all homeschooled their kids. <laughs> the principals and assistant principals home-educated their kids. And there was a reason for that. There's a doctor in our church, and his father at the time when he chose to home-educate was the superintendent of schools for the whole state. And he said, I'm not putting my kids, your grandchildren, Dad, in these public schools. Because he saw the damage they were doing. Not to mention, when you compare the uh, learning skills that those who are being home educated versus the public school kids, there, there's no comparison versus testing, all kinds of things. Look, if you've got 20 or 30 students in a classroom, they learn at different rates. Some kids are just, they learn very fast. Some kids learn very slow. So what's your job as a teacher? You have to, you have to lead the pack together because you're, you're teaching a herd of children. And so you have to provide busy work for the fast learners, and you have to keep it at a pace where the slow learners can hopefully get it. And teachers in our school who, who, who do this tell me one of the great blessings is when I, I'm able to give two minutes of individualized attention to a child and really see them get a concept. I can't do that very often because I've got 36 kids in my class. And so you can do that when you home educate your children. If you ask people, what is the Cadillac education? They would say it's the kind that was given to child movie stars a tutorial one-on-one -on -one kind of education. And what you're able to do is you're able to um, help the child develop a skill, excel in the skill, which really builds confidence, and you're able, too, to create a love for learning so that it's not, well, school is out and summer is in and my brain is off. It's more like, 
I like learning because you've created an atmosphere where the children are successful. Obviously, there are some children who are gifted of God, maybe mechanically or technically, and maybe not on the same level academically, but there are basic skills that virtually any child can get. A third advantage is you can provide your children with the curriculum you want. There's all kinds of curriculum options that are now available that was not available when we home educated our children. And what you discover is that children sometimes have different learning um, tendencies. Some are auditory learners, some are visual learners, and so forth. And so usually if you're just starting and you're not a student of your child, and it's not as critical as an issue in the early grades, but when you're just starting, um, you're able to uh, typically use a broad curriculum, and then you, as you learn what your student excels at and how they learn, you can cater the curriculum to the particular needs that they have. And two, it allows you to evaluate your child um, in such skills like English and math, because many times children are just kind of pushed through to the next grade. And so you have an eighth grader in high school or middle school here in, in the, uh, the county, but they're actually functioning fifth grade math, but they're in eighth grade math. And so what does that lead to? Frustration. So what you're able to do is you're able to evaluate your children, especially if you're listening and you're starting late and you say your kids are in fourth grade and you've never home educated before. And well, you can test your children. And there are tests that are put out by a number of, um, you know, uh, academics who will, you know, create a curriculum in math or English or whatever. And like, for instance, a, a popular math curriculum is called Saxon. And so if your child was in the fifth grade, they give them the fifth grade test. And then when it's graded, they might say, well, actually, your child is operating on third grade. So you don't frustrate them. You pick up and you begin to plug in the holes that they've missed and you bring them up to the grade level where they need to be. And that's important. I remember my wife and I, really largely my wife, trying to help a neighbor, and this child did. Well, basically, they threw her out of the public schools because she was nothing but trouble. So then they sent her to two different Christian schools, and she was nothing but trouble. Like, no one wanted her. And... She said, well, let's see what we can do to help her. Well, this girl was, uh, if I remember correctly, in the eighth grade, and she read on a first grade level. She virtually could not read. And a whole reason she was such a troublemaker in class is she didn't want to be called on. She didn't want to be embarrassed. And they just pushed her through grade level to grade level to grade level. And in a short period of time with some focused attention, my wife was able to impart some skills, and that girl just really blossomed. Fourth here in your outline, you can provide your children with a flexible environment for learning. The government schools typically eight hours long, um, 40 hours a week in school. Then they have to come home, and they have a certain amount of homework they have to do. Uh, very often they're sitting behind a desk that maybe is uncomfortable. 
and they are in a classroom where half the day is spent in disciplinary issues. What's happened is, is the family in America has broken down, and so there's no discipline. And these children come to the school, and they're undisciplined, and they're unruly. And they're very, very difficult to try to teach and to train. And so there's so much wasted time. Now, one of the things you will learn if you choose to homeschool is that for every grade level, there's what we call a scope and sequence. In fact, you can get even the World Book Encyclopedia. I know they don't make hard copies of it. I don't think anymore. Maybe you can get a hard copy, but, uh, you know, it's available online. And uh, you can see the scope and sequence for every grade level just in a book, you know, a, a set of books like that. And so what your first grader needs to know, what your second grader needs to know, what your third grader needs to know. Generally speaking, home educators discover that by February, maybe by March, they have the scope and sequence done for the entire year that's going to take the public school to the end of May to accomplish. Now, by law, you're required four and a half hours a day in most states to educate your children. And so most homeschoolers, they learn the discipline of getting their kids up, getting them to bed on time. And generally, by about noon, they're finished. And by February or March, they've done everything that the public school is going to spend the whole year doing. Um, and you've got some flexibility, too, because you are in charge. If you want to take your family vacation in February, you can. If you want to go visit your grandparents or the children's grandparents and, uh, you know, and teach them at their kitchen table, you can. There's a lot of flexibility that you can create. Point five there. A fifth advantage is you can provide your children with an environment for character growth. Of course, Jesus was asked on one occasion, really out of trickery as much as anything, what was the great and foremost commandment? And of course, he quoted Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word most of you know for hear. Hear, O Israel, Shema. Shema, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your, ch to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You see, when you are home educating your children, you have the opportunity to be with your children. You have the opportunity to shape your children. There's an assumption in the Shema that you will walk with your children in the way. You'll lie down. You, you'll actually have a dinner meal together. You'll sit down at the dinner table together. Where typically in a public school setting, your opportunity for that same character development is significantly limited. Remember what Proverbs 13 and verse 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. He who walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of a fool will suffer harm. And so let's just say for the sake of argument that there was a public school in America that had a biblical worldview, but you had your child 
in a setting all day long where over 50% of the kids are pagan. Hey, look, 80% of the children under the age of 12 in America no longer go to church. They don't go to church anymore. 80%. What kind of spiritual influence are these kids getting? Almost zero. So what are they being nurtured on? Star Wars and, you know, all kinds of stuff that is a worldview that is contrary to Scripture. And so your kids are being exposed to all these other children day after day after day. And God says, look, I'll have you be wise to the things that are good, innocent to the things that are evil. And a companion of fools will suffer harm, and the children's friends, as much as anything, are going to influence and impact their kids. So we sent our kids to a Christian, our, our firstborn to a Christian school. I never finished that story. But he began picking up some things that we didn't like. And this, by the way, was a Christian school that had high standards. It was a closed enrollment. You had to be a born-again Christian, both parents, and attending a Bible-believing church, both parents. But he was picking up some things because... Look, some people jump through the hoops, but their Christianity is not really passionate. And so it was during this time that my wife began to read a book by Raymond Moore on uh, homeschooling. And I'm in seminary, and I'm in my third year of Hebrew, and um, studying Greek, and I said, honey, I'm so busy, but I'm not too busy to hear what you have to say. So she'd read to me like a chapter a night. And by the time we were like four chapters through that book, I said, we're pulling our kids out. We're going to do this. And of course, this is the way it worked is we'd leave house, she'd leave the house in the morning with the kids in the car. She'd drive our firstborn to school, come home, go back at noon, bring him back. The next year, if we enrolled him, they're going to both go in the morning. She'd have to go back at noon, come back, go back at 3.30, pick up the second one, come home. And just the drive time, 20 minutes times four, was enough time to teach those two boys everything they needed to know that year. And in the early grades, you know, I mean, people think, oh, you know, homeschooling the kids, you know, eight hours a day and in four and a half hours required by law. But in the early years, you can pull it off largely in a couple of hours a day. And two, you're creating a learning laboratory. All life is opportunities to teach and train your children. One common question we have, well, if they're not in public schools, and this is one of the big critiques that this Harvard group is going to begin to hammer to our politicians as to why home education needs to be more highly regulated. They're going to hammer that these kids aren't getting a balanced socialization, that they're just with their family all day. Well, there's nothing wrong with being with your family. And we live in a culture, and sometimes the churches in America foster this because they have a very loose view of family. The kids don't even worship with the family. 
You know, we got children's church, now we got junior high church, and we got high school church. And I've been to some churches where the kids can graduate from high school and technically not even worship with their parents. That's not good. If the child is old enough to understand, children, obey your parents for this is right. The first commandment with a promise that it might be well with you that you might live long on the earth. If a child can understand that because Paul is addressing the children directly in Ephesians. He assumes they are there in the public worship service hearing the word of God. If a child can understand that, he's old enough to be in church. We tell parents, you can bring your children in whatever age you want. But by the time they reach five, you need to be bringing them into big church, as we call it. Don't drop them off in Sunday school, and then you just come in and be here in big church, and then you go get them, and, and, and they are never in the worship service with you. If they're five, they're old enough to be in big church. And so we, we have, even in an evangelical church, uh, a, a culture this, that is not really intentionally training the children and exposing them to the Word of God. And, and if you wait until they're 10 or 11 or 12, it may be too late in the culture we live in. So you need to start earlier. So your kids are going to be socialized, one in the family, but be in the church. Hopefully you're going to have other Christian friends that you're going to meet. And that's a good, positive kind of socialization. Um, People say, well, what if I live in Wyoming and my neighbor, nearest neighbor is three miles apart? Well, if you obey God's word and you attend a Bible-believing church, you're going to socialize on some level. The question is not are you going to socialize. The question is what kind of socialization are your children going to get? Okay, let's move to the legal realm of homeschooling, to the legal realm. Uh, Roman numeral three there. In the United States, the Supreme Court has ruled that parents have a fundamental right to direct the education of their children. And so uh, you have to come under the laws and the guidelines of the particular state that you live in. Here's a, here's a um, picture of a map that you will find at HSLDA, which stands for Homeschool Legal Defense Association. And that website is there in your handout, HSLDA. And the different colors, if you go to that map, um, will show you how homeschooling is regulated in your particular state. Some states it's very low. The lowest would be you don't have to do anything. You don't have to let anybody know. You just, just homeschool your kids. There's not many states like that left anymore. Moderate would be like South Carolina. High would be... The highest in the dark states would be um, you have to have a college degree to homeschool your kids. Now, what's happening is, is there's a movement that is underway in the United States that wants to make homeschooling very difficult. This is why Christians need to keep their ear to the ground. Things are happening, you know, even in our own state. There was a bill up in Columbia that would keep, you know, boys out of girls' sports. You know, we were talking a couple days ago. I said, well, what if the Olympics come down? Now this transgender thing, some guy says he's a girl. 
and he's going to compete in women athletics. 20 records that were held for 20 years in the state of Connecticut were broken by guys who now claim they are girls. And some of these young women who worked so hard in order to get scholarships and other things were basically overlooked because this guy who now became a girl took the record and he gets the scholarship. Again, you know, when you lose your morals, you lose your mind. And that's where we are at. And there's a movement underfoot that wants to make it very difficult to homeschool. And so, so we had just a basic ordinance up there in Columbia and they couldn't pull it off to say, no, women's sports are women's sports, men's sports are men's sports. They couldn't make it happen. Just like the ordinance that I told you, many listening, I know many of you are live streaming in different parts of the country, but we had an ordinance in Columbia, which is our state capital, and I told our people one Sunday morning, because I got wind of it early before other churches across the state, and I said on Tuesday, they're going to do a second reading of this thing, and it's going to become an ordinance so that if I'm a pastor or you're a Christian counselor, and some 17-year-old boy comes in and says, I think I maybe am a girl, and you show him biblically, no, you're a boy, that your sex is not determined between your ears, but between your legs, that God created you male or female, period, and you give counsel like that, you're going to be arrested. And they wrote the ordinance in Columbia and such that the police, I mean, they put in there, the police will come and arrest you. And had it not been for three or four hundred people in this church who emailed and called and just blistered those eight councilmen, it would probably be a law. So there are things that are underway across our country that if Christians aren't aware of, we're going to lose a lot of our freedoms. But in virtually any state, 180 days, four and a half hours a day, certain basic subjects, reading, writing, math, science. But again, you can control what kind of science you want your kids to get. So even my grandkids, they learn evolution, but they also learn the creation model so that they can argue both sides. They're really being educated. Um, so in this state, and this is just South Carolina, you're in another state, you can go to hslda.org, click on your state, and it will give the specific re- regulations. In this state, as in many states, you have three options. You can be a public homeschool, that's option number one. You homeschool under the state statute. Um, and uh, they have to approve you if you meet certain criteria. And that can look differently from county to county in terms of how you prove that you have met that criteria. Um, If your student doesn't perform well on a test, then they can revoke your privilege to homeschool and maybe even ask your child to go back into the public school or into a private school. Not the best option by any stretch. And by the way, when we came here and we started homeschooling in 1990, my wife and I were the only home educators on this side of the Broad River, and there was one family on the other side of the Broad River. In South Carolina, it was not a friendly place to homeschool. There was more cases pending against parents in South Carolina than in all 50 states combined. That's changed. A second option is to join a group called SCASE. 
It stands for the South Carolina Association of Independent Home Schools. So it's kind of an umbrella group. It's a legal way in which to homeschool your kids. Uh, they have fees because they have staff that they pay that make sure all the requirements are met, and I've listed some of those, a first child, second child, so forth. Um, not a bad option. It's a little more expensive. Third opportunity is you can join a private homeschool association. In this state, there has to be at least 50 member families. So there are some who have started a homeschool association, but they don't have the 50 member families. But they did it anyway, and they're probably going to get in trouble, especially as the state is tightening up. Um, we have approximately 280-some children in this church that are home-educated. So there's a lot of, uh, lot of families that are represented. And what happens for a lot of folks who come here, because this church grows largely by conversion. People come here lost, they hear the gospel, they start growing, and they say, hmm, my kid's coming home and telling me this. He learned this in school. I don't like this. Didn't concern the parent before, but now it's a big concern. Why? Because when you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You have a new set of ears. You have the mind of Christ. You hear, see, hear things and see things you never heard or saw before. And so some say, oh, maybe we should send them to the Christian school. And that's not necessarily a bad option. It can be, though, very expensive. Uh, or you could homeschool your children. And we'll talk about the, the price of that. So... We have a, an association, there are no charges. It, to be legal, it can only be for members of our church. I wish we could just open it up broadly, but it can only be for members of Community Bible Church. But there are other associations in the state, and if you're listening in another city or another state, maybe you have one that's close by that you could become a part of. Okay, how to get started, Roman numeral four, and then we'll take some questions. First thing is find out what the law is in your state. Then you'd want to choose a curriculum. And by the way, on Saturday we have a book fair. A book fair. It's once a year. So, like maybe someone is um, home educating a third grader, and it's not going to be passed on to another child. So the parents come and they sell their curriculum, and it's just as good as buying it new. Um, most parents, you know, are protective of its use, so they can resell it. And you can get it for, you know, usually 25% of its price. But you also have a chance to meet some other home educators. At least in our church, we provide some people who will mentor you if it's asked for. So if someone says, I've never homeschooled before, but I've got a first grader that we're, I'm going to mentor, uh, that I'm going to educate next year. So what will we do? We'll set you up with a more experienced mom who's already homeschooled. Maybe three first graders. And they've walked down that road and they can give you some help and some encouragement. So that's what the body of Christ does. Then um, you commit your way to the Lord and start. So here's the thing is, you know, I'd rather have my children to be total ignoramuses. and to guard their hearts for eternity than to produce some little Einstein to spend an eternity in hell. And like never, ever before in the history of our nation, the souls of your children are at stake. 
you really need to give this some hard thought. Oh, it's good for that guy. I'm not saying it's easy. And many times in the first year, parents grow a whole lot. They get organized for the first time in their life. And many times they're learning right along with their children. They discover how many holes they had in their education. That they never really learned this skill or this concept. But now there are so many things that are available that weren't available. You know, there's online courses where, hey, maybe I can't teach algebra, but there's an online group that does it. And my child can take that, be in that online group, and then we can work through the homework or whatever. And then there's all these hybrid schools now where, um, you know, and again, you can do it very inexpensively. These hybrid schools and opportunities like that, none of those things were available to us when we home educated our kids. So one time my wife was homeschooling five kids at one time. What did it cost? Uh, uh, when we were doing five kids, about the max was about six to seven hundred dollars a year. Um, so it's not necessarily expensive, but it's a challenge. But it's worth it. So let me take questions, and you can ask whatever you want. And um, you can just kind of yell it, and I'll repeat it if you want. You don't have to come to the microphone. I, I learned some people were shy, Jason, about coming up to the microphone. Questions that you have, you can ask whatever you want. Any questions at all? Surely there must be one. Yes, yes. There we go. All right, Elia. Thank you. What is the best curriculum for homeschooling? So it's a good question. Um, I don't think you can say necessarily there's one best curriculum. Now, some people will like buy one curriculum from one company and they buy everything, say, by a Becca, which is a Christian homeschooling organization. They were originally just in Christian schools and they took a lot of their material and then tried to adapt it for, for homeschoolers. So you could buy your, your math curriculum and your English curriculum. And there's two critical subjects that you have to learn. And one is math and English. And then you can kind of work the other subjects either through a formal curriculum or just uh, through the public library and whatever aids you have available. So, for instance, um, I remember one year in the scope of the sequence, there was a number of skills. One of the children had to get one was charting. And so um, my wife took this life experience. We had these raccoons coming up on our back deck at night. And so, one, they were kind of fascinated by the raccoons. So when they went to the public library, which we used all the time, they checked out some books on raccoons. And then they... Um, uh, one of the skills was a charting skill. And so she said, well, let's create a chart, what we read in books about raccoons and what we observed in nature about raccoons. And we created this chart, or she did. And then, of course, um, when they did the penmanship and the letter writing, said, well, I want you to write a, a letter to your grandfather about your raccoon experience. And so, you know, that was a chance to work on penmanship and spelling and, 
And, you know, again, it kind of created a fun environment. Um, and what you discovered, too, is you home educate your children, you'll find, you know, one that just has an interest in a subject. Like we, our, our youngest son, Jameson, had an interest in the U.S. presidents. And he could tell you everything about the president. You know, a president got stuck in a bathtub and couldn't get out. And, you know, there's all this trivia and stuff, and it was fascinating. And he just loved U.S. history. In fact, for our whole history, we just had an eight-volume series called The History of Us, The History of U.S. Eight volumes, all the kids read it. That was their education. But we supplemented that with real books. And so to this day, Jameson has a love for American history. So when he went up to USC at Columbia and discovered that there was actually a law on the books that required every institution of higher learning to teach the Constitution of the United States, and he wanted to know why USC was not doing it, nor Clemson, nor any other school. And so he started writing letters to college presidents, and over the next seven years, he worked on this project. And he ended up, he was so committed to this, he went to work for a state senator so that he could write the statute for the state senator who knew nothing about the law, convinced them why this was important. It finally passed 60 days ago, and the governor of the state invited him in, took pictures with Jameson, and, and Senator Groom says, it wasn't me. He wrote the statute. He worked on this for seven years. He convinced, and now, this coming fall, 21,000 students in the state of South Carolina are going to be reading the United States Constitution, the Federalist Papers, the Declaration of Independence, and some abolition papers. It just, but it came from a love of history. So, you know, you find a child that maybe has a love in a particular subject and you, you run with them and you let them excel in that area that they have a great interest in. So if you do well in math and English, you're going to allow them to do well for the SAT. <laughs> and believe it or not, that's all that matters, the, the SAT when they apply to college. And it starts in ninth grade. Now, we had our kids taking the real SAT by the seventh grade. Now, we require testing in the academy. And um, if you're interested in the academy, all this stuff is online, what the requirements are. There's no cost, but you have to educate your kids 180 days out of the year, four and a half hours a day. Uh, you have to submit quarterly reports, uh, which is like one page of math, one page of English, whatever the subjects are. It takes you all of about 15 minutes just to collect it, put it in a file. That way, if someone challenges uh, you in terms of whether you're truant or actually doing it, we can actually prove that you have met all the legal requirements. And again, I think some things are coming down the road here that are going to really change and challenge home educators. But we're going to obey the law and, uh, and we're going to do everything we can to protect the laws in this state. So there's no one right curriculum. You ask someone, you know, what's the best car to drive? Oh, you know, it's a Mercedes, or no, it's a Cadillac, no, it's a Toyota, and homeschoolers think the same way. But there are certainly some curriculums that seemingly most homeschoolers do pretty well with, like, say, a Saxon math. A lot of homeschoolers really excel in that because it kind of reviews every year. 
Um, so when you're in sixth grade, it, in the course of uh, the sixth grade, it's reviewing fourth and fifth grade, and it's mastering the skill. And if you work long enough with the child, you can potentially they can get A's. You're the principal, you give them the grade. And two, you can also, in their junior and senior year of high school, allow them to take courses at the local colleges and universities. And so, for instance, uh, a B at USC is worth an A on a high school transcript. And an A at USC is a 5-0 on a 4-0 scale. So we have students graduating every year from Community Bible Church Christian Academy, which is the umbrella group for home education, with over a 4-0. And what that also does is when they hit the high school years, it gives you a chance to expose them to another teacher, to a syllabus and requirements and assignments, but you're working with that home that child all the way through that course. Let me see your paper. Let me read it. Oh, red ink, red ink, change this, change that. This is poorly written, and you know, and you're really mastering the skill. And again, if they do well in math and English on the SAT, that validates the grades that you give them and potentially puts them in a situation to get some really good scholarships. And that's important in the day that we live in. And when I meet with every high school student, they have to meet with a pastor. I don't meet with all 100% of them now, but usually half of them. And I just say, look, you don't want to come out of college with debt. A college degree today is worth what a high school degree was 30 years ago. Um, I graduated from a high school class with over 500 students in it. Only 30% went to college. Uh, and this was, um, you know, not... You know, this is that, that was standard in America in 1974 when I graduated from high school. That gradually changed. Now, 70% of high school students go to college. 30% go in the military or they have a scale or whatever they say do. So a college degree now is worth what a high school degree is. And so I tell them, if you're going to spend money and bar, bar it on a graduate degree that you can employ yourself with. And then you can, you know, feed your family and... Do whatever it is that God wants you to do. So go to the book fair on Saturday. You'll meet a lot of homeschoolers and you'll hear a lot of opinions. And that, that's healthy. Um, and uh, But basically, you just need to start with a, a math and an English curriculum kind of bottom line. How old is your child again, Elliot? Five. So, you know, really simple. You really don't even virtually even have to buy curriculum, but you could. Uh, you could buy a couple of books for that five-year-old that, you know, kind of like workbooks and coloring. And um, you're already teaching your child a lot of things about how to speak. And you've already imparted a lot of skills already as parents. You're just going to keep going with that. And the professional educators have tried to convince people you can't do it. You can't do it. You can do it. You can do this. It's going to be easy. No. It's going to be challenging at times. But when you're dealing with, she's going to be uh, first grade uh, or kindergarten. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about max an hour a day, one hour a day. Now, I know technically four and a half hours, but, you know, we're going to the park today. and We're going to learn about fire ants, you know, whatever it is. So all of life is a laboratory. 
But in terms of the scope and sequence and what that child's going to need, an hour a day, you'll have it pulled off. And you're protecting that child's heart so that you can shape the child, introduce the child to Christ at a young age, hopefully, and really help them to grow. Yes. Yes, you can. You're homeschooled through high school, yeah. um, My mom couldn't afford a lot of curriculum, so we tried a lot of different things. And it honestly was really good because we found out, like, some of us did better with Apologia, some of us did better with Yes. So because your child is so young, that'll be super helpful. Just try different things as they get older, and you may find that maybe someone else loves Abeka, but your child specifically does better with Apologia or whatever. That's true. So, and and even within your family, we we had most of our kids all did Saxon, but one of my child children didn't do Saxon, and he did better with another curriculum. So again, the the longer you get down that road, and the more homeschoolers you meet and talk to, and that's why to have some support groups. So, like to be a part of the academy, there are some required meetings a year, and they're just here to help parents. Where like four times a year they show up at a meeting in this auditorium, and it's. Uh, I did one of them this year, and it's really how to prepare your child for college. When's the time to think about that? In the third grade, <laughs> you know, and so we talked about some of the mechanics of that, and they're just here to help. Somebody else? Another question? Yes. So, um, obviously, yeah, so there there are groups, and there there's support, and you know, and of course, if you get involved in a church, you're always going to meet people and build friendships. And we haven't done it since COVID, but, you know, we've even done field trips and different things and moms do outings together. And, and when they come to the support group meetings, they meet other mothers and they, you know, trade off on ideas. And yeah, there's tremendous support. When you got a church with 250 kids being homeschooled more, you know, you're going to meet other homeschoolers. So, yeah, question. Did I see your hand? No. Yeah, in the back, yeah. I had a question as far as, like, for military families. Yeah. Do, would we have to, uh, I guess, go off of the state that we're stationed in, so, like, every time we, we switch states? Yeah, we a- you do. You do, Chris. So you have to um, register in the state that you are in. Now, we've made a few rare exceptions for some people who uh, are here, and then they're deployed, say, to Japan, and we've allowed them to function under our umbrella. But those families have to really demonstrate that they were meeting all the requirements and everything else. But if you're in South Carolina and then you get tra- you know, transferred to 29 Palms, you're going to have to come under the laws of that state. So you go to hslda.org, click on the map, there's the state, here's the ordinances for the state, and you just follow them. But this is like a blessing for people who are in the military because they move around a lot, and it's not like this traumatic, oh, we're uprooting and this school, and what's this next school going to be like? You already know because you're the principal of this school, and your mom's the... Your wife's, uh, you know, major teacher, so there's a, really a lot of flexibility. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of moms are like that. They think, how am I gonna? 
homeschool all these kids. Or right now, you, you work all the kids together. You put them to bed at a certain time. You eat a meal together. You do stuff. It's no different. It's just uh, so you, you see the mindset is, oh, you know, OK, I've got this five year old. So just like in the traditional learning atmosphere, I'm going to have this child in a room for eight hours. No, you're going to come over and spend about two or three minutes teaching a skill. And I want you to work on this page. You come back 15 minutes later and you're changing this diaper and fixing this over here. And then you come back and let me see how you're doing. And you begin to manage all these children at once. It's not an impossibility. And you'll discover when you speak with other, it just, it just goes together. It just, they do. And you know, what happens is, is because you're creating a love for learning and they're mastering a skill before they go on to the next. After a while, they begin to a certain degree to teach themselves. And you'll be absolutely amazed at how much they're teaching themselves because you are giving them the skills to make that happen. So it's, um, you know, people think, oh, you know, what's bedlam sometimes is um, many times people who start home schooling realize that they're undisciplined. And they have to get their act together. But that's not a homeschool problem. Or you know, they say, well, my children won't listen to me. That's not a homeschool problem. That's a parental problem if your kids don't listen to you. So for some parents, you know, their kids are unruly. And how am I going to pull this? Well, you, you got to start learning biblical discipline. You know, we, we have some books that we use from the counseling office. We suggest to people, like what the Bible says about child discipline, Fugate's book, that's a good one, or... Uh, Campbell's book, How to Really Love Your Child, or whatever. So those are some good resources. And and again, you begin to instill discipline and help your child to to get their life in order. And of course, the sooner you can introduce them to Christ, it's far easier to raise a child who's been regenerated at six or seven or eight years of age than one who is not, where they're not only motivated to obey you, they're also motivated to obey the Lord. And that's ideal. And I, I suggest to parents to take my course, Biblical Parenting 101 and Biblical Parenting 102. So those are all online. I taught them in the Institute of Biblical Studies. And they're like, um, I forgot, it's probably 20 weeks total. But you're going to learn the basic parenting skills to be successful. So God, it's not a mystery. God has his ways. But we live in a day where the Bible's not even taught anymore in churches. You don't even need a Bible to come to the average evangelical church. You can hear the sermon without a Bible and do just fine. That's how sick the church is in America. It's created massive numbers. But people largely who are unregenerate, and so we have pastors on Sunday morning, who instead of feeding the sheep, they're entertaining the goats. And you don't really need a Bible. So this is why I say it's fundamental that you're in a sound church for your own spiritual growth, because it's all integrated together. It all works together. Someone else, another question. Yes. Uh, what time is the book fair? 
92, thank you. I had no idea. <laughs> All right. There we go, 92. Yeah, so the book fair is uh, 92 on Saturday. It'll be right over here in the atrium. So, yeah. Someone else? All right, so, um, yes. So, no, yeah, there's a natural hunger for learning start. Uh, You don't have to do anything formally in most states until kindergarten, some states first grade. Um, But that's now changing, and probably within two years it's going to be K-4. Again, if this administration has their ways. They want to take your children away from you sooner than later so they can really shape the mind of your kids. But no, you know, um, so, and kids are all different, you know. We, we've had children who could do math aggressively but couldn't read right off. And so reading is kind of like walking, you know. You have a child that walks at nine months, and you have a child that doesn't walk until 18 months. Sooner or later, they're going to walk. And sometimes parents get kind of upset. My child's not reading. I saw this kid at church, and he's just reading through the Bible, and my child can't even pronounce a word. All of a sudden, something clicks in the brain, and it works. And boys tend to be late in reading more so than girls, but not always. But, but sooner or later, they'll get it. And once the hunger is there, I mean, if you've got a child who already is interested in learning numbers and reading and, you know, you use the Bob books, which are really, really simple, you know, uh, books to teach a child to read or something, let, let them run with it. And, of course, one of the best ways to teach your children to read is to read to them, as, you know, as you probably know. All right. All right. I don't want to violate you all's schedule any further, so... Um, thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for live streaming our friends that joined us tonight. And uh, if you have a question and it wasn't answered, you can submit them to Mothering from the Heart. That's at searchthescriptures.org. But Mothering from the Heart, that's my wife's website. And she does a radio broadcast. And she takes, she is the real expert in homeschooling. She's with our grandkids tonight. But we've done this for 30 years. And the reason we started this seminar was uh, when we first came here, like we were just inundated with questions about, well, why do you homeschool and why do you do this? And I, I found myself saying, you know, I'm talking to people all day about homeschooling. and I've got other things to do as a pastor. I said, why don't we just, you know, have a seminar? And so we've had over 3,000 families in the last 30 years go through this seminar who've learned about homeschooling. And actually, last year, through the COVID thing, there's a silver lining in it. We had somewhere around 4,000 who totally watched it just in one year, the homeschool seminar, because they live stream. So, Father, um, thank you for this time tonight. We know for some here tonight, this is just a critical juncture to get Dad and Mom on the same page uh, to agree. And... Uh, to take stewardship over the hearts of their children. Uh, You told us that there would be a day in human history when it would become like the days of Noah where there would be increased lawlessness and violence and immorality, and you said it would also be like the days of Lot, days of sexual perversion. 
But thank you that in the midst of a godless society, Noah was able to raise godly children. And thank you that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But help us not to ignore your principles. Help us to watch over our own hearts with all diligence. Because we know we cannot impart what we do not possess ourselves. Help everyone here and those within the sound of my voice who are listening tonight or who will later watch this broadcast to find a church where the pastor will open the scriptures and teach them where they can be in a growing, vital relationship with your son. Thank you for the blessing of children, that you give us children not to make them fuel for the flames of hell, but you've given us children that we might raise up a godly heritage. And so help us to make wise decisions in these days. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.